Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, this morning, verses 14 through 16. We're in the midst of the study of the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we uh, asked the question, we'll ask again today, what are Christians in the world? And how should we relate to the world? Last week we saw Jesus answer that question, verse 13, when he says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. This week, he says to those same disciples, you are the light of the world. Let's consider that then from Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Who are you in this world? Hear now the word of God. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, we pray that this word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lift Jesus before our eyes and help us to fix our eyes on him. In his name I pray. Amen. What role do disciples of Jesus have in this world? As we remarked last week, Jesus knows that if you love him, and if you live for him, people will oppose you. You may, remember the last of the Beatitudes most recently stated, you may, for his sake and for righteousness sake, you may be insulted, You may be scorned, you may be slandered, you might be ignored, or you might be persecuted in some more uh, troubling way. And that's never easy. It's always awkward and unsettling to be sure, to be different, and then not to be liked, or even worse, because of it. And so Christians might be fearful of being thought weird by the world. Even our neighbors, even people in our own home. You don't want to be thought weird. You don't, certainly you don't want to be hated for loving Jesus and caring about what Jesus cares about. Nobody wants that. And so what do we do, though, with that awkwardness uh, as Christians? How, how do we relate to the world? And we're always tempted to do something other than what Jesus says here. One of the things we're tempted to do is to compromise, to go along, to get along, right? And Jesus we said last week, says don't do that. The world needs you to be different from the world for the sake of the world, right? So we said very provocatively, hate the world without hating the world. In other words, hate the system of the world that is set in rebellion against God, but don't hate the people of the world. Don't hate even your enemies. Love them, Jesus says. Don't hate the people lost in a hateful system. 
Other Christians may not be tempted so much uh, by compromise as by antagonism, right? Go on a war footing. Uh, There were people like that in Jesus' day. Very righteous Jews in Jesus' day called zealots. They were incensed at the paganism around them that Rome and the Greek culture had imported into their land, the Jerusalem, the land of God, Israel. And so they went to war and they fought. They killed people, right, in hopes of glorifying God. And there are Christians today, wrong as they are in it, think our basic posture to the world ought to be combat, right? Uh, Get ready for war. Hate those who hate you, fight against those, fight against flesh and blood. That's not how it's supposed to be. Jesus says, love the world. To say it provocatively, love the world without loving the world. Love the people of the world, even your enemies, without loving the system of the world set against God in rebellion. And others, of course, rather than compromising or being antagonistic, will uh, isolate, run and hide, right? And, and there was a group in Jesus' day who did something like that. They were called the Essenes. They, they were a fervent religious group. Uh, you know of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the area of the Dead Sea where those were found. Well, the Essenes were part of this Qumran community uh, where they had basically uh, gotten fed up with uh, the, those who had come to their nation and in their eyes ruined things. And they kind of peeled off and they created their own little community Uh, their own little subculture, uh, their own little commune to keep themselves away from the world. Ironically enough, they called themselves the sons of light. Jesus something may even have sort of cocked his head in their direction as he looked at his disciples and said, you are the light of the world. I mean, people still do this today, right? I I mentioned last week, I'm tempted to it. Uh, If you've ever seen M. Night Shyamalaya's The Village, Uh, You know that it's a disaster, though, to approach life this way. To tuck yourselves into your own little corner of the world, away from everybody else. And what's the problem when you do that? You bring sin and evil right there with you. You never escape it. It's inside us. We need to be saved from it. The problem with the world is not those people. The problem with the world, we Christians admit every week at Redeemer when we confess our sins, the problem with the world is us. I'm what's wrong with the world. My heart, my filth, my sin, my pride, my self-righteousness. Well, anyway, we're always tempted to compromise, to be antagonistic, to isolate. And Jesus says, I don't want you to do those things. Yes, the world is a bad place. The world is full of sin. But don't go start a monastery, you know, don't just hang out with Christians, be in the world, yet not of the world. Be useful to the world, even as you're distinct from the world. Be salt, be the salt of the earth, be light, be the light of the world, and bring light into darkness. And so uh, today we're thinking about that second metaphor, not salt, but light. And we want to do it in four parts from this passage. In the, uh, I want you to think about the declaration Jesus makes, two illustrations he gives, and then the exhortation uh, and the motivation. He, he gives a declaration in verse 14, you are the light of the world. He follows it up with two illustrations uh, to get at what he's talking about. And then at verse 16, 
he says, he gives an exhortation, a command, let your light shine. And then he follows that up with a motivation for that, that your father might be glorified. So those four things, let's think about them together in the first place, a declaration. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. It's not subject to debate. It's not something Jesus negotiated with his disciples. He didn't ask them, you know, how do you want to represent me in the world? How do you want to posture yourself? He just said, what you are is light. And he declared it emphatically, you. That's emphatic. That's, that's you. You, my disciples, you and you alone are the light of the world. Nobody else is. And he's referring to those people who are what? Not arrogant and self-righteous and proud and glad that they're right and everybody else is wrong, but people who admit what? The Beatitudes. People who are poor in spirit and know that they're bankrupt before God. They have nothing to offer him, but everything to receive from him. People who mourn their own sins, people who are meek, people who are hungering and thirsting for a righteousness because they don't have it in themselves. They, They need to get it from Christ. People who then are merciful to others, people who are pure in heart, peacemakers, and might be persecuted. These, he says, are the light of the world. And notice again, like we said with salt, how highly Jesus thinks of his disciples. The world may say of you, if you believe the Bible, if you believe in a deity that you worship, and a, and a, a God-man who lived this earth, on this earth, was crucified and raised and is alive, they may think you're an idiot, They may think you're ignorant, you're backward, you're stupid, you're dumb, you're foolish. And Jesus says, no, 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 what you are is the light of the world in a dark world. And Jesus thinks that about you because you have the love of God in your heart, you have the truth of God in your mind, you belong to him. You're the light of the world. The implication, of course, is that the world needs light because the world is in darkness. But, of course, the world doesn't think that. The world thinks you're in darkness if you're a Christian. And the world thinks it's enlightened, right? It's proud that it's no longer in the dark ages. We've been through the Renaissance, the world says. We've been through the Enlightenment, the world says. We're technologically and scientifically sophisticated in our day. And why? We can Google the answer to anything. And get the right answer at our fingertips, the world says. We're progressing as a society. What's wrong is people who say there's something really wrong with people. What's wrong with the world, the world says, is people who say you need to be saved. So therefore, the world says our eyes are wide open. We're not backward or unsophisticated or foolish enough to believe in Jesus like you dumb Christians. But Jesus says, I don't want you to ever forget what your Father in heaven thinks of you. When the world thinks you're ignorant for believing in me, remember your Father in heaven thinks you are wise because you know him and you walk with him. When the world thinks you're expendable, remember that the Father in heaven thinks you're vital to the world. Now, as you think those things, stay humble, right? Because he says, you are the light of the world, but you must never forget that Jesus first said of himself, I am the light of the world. And though he doesn't say it here, you and I are only the light of the world because we're in Christ who is the light 
of the world. We aren't lights on our own by our own strength, merit, wisdom, or anything of the sort. No, no, no. Jesus is the true light of the world with a capital L, right? doesn't originate with us. We said at the call to worship, Jesus in John 8 says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. He is light in our darkness. Through trusting in him, through believing in him, you are united to him. And you as his disciple then become the light of the world, small l, light of the world. Jesus said in John chapter 9, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And there's a, there's a hint there, an, an indication that he understood that he was not going to remain personally in the flesh in the world. He knew what was coming, that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to be rejected, crucified, rise and ascend into heaven and be gone. It was his plan, though, that while he is in heaven, we should be, his people should be, his ambassadors on the earth. And he dwells in us and he shines his light through us. It is in union with Jesus that we are light. If you have him, you have the light of Christ, the light of life. But if you do not have Christ in you, you are still in darkness. Who are you? Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Now the second thing I want you to see are the illustrations he gives in verses 14 and 15. Uh, The first is this. A city, he says, set on a hill cannot be hidden. What's he getting at? The city on a hill is impossible to miss. There's a, there's a kind of certainty about it here. As another put it, in, in America, cities are mainly built on rivers because from our founding, commerce was done up and down rivers and on the coastlines. But in Israel, most cities are on a hill. They give you a superior position for defense. You don't want to be down in the valley where your aggressors have the superior position overlooking you. You want to be on the mountaintop. When a city is built on a mountaintop, when it's built on a hill, there is, because it's a city, there is human life. And so there are fires and there are lamps. There's light shining out of windows of homes. There's fires burning at the city gates. There's street lamps in a city. And that cannot be hidden especially to a traveler down in the valley and at night in the darkness where the only other light is perhaps the moon, but sometimes it's not even visible. Where the only other light are the stars. That city, even a small light, cannot be hidden. And that's the point, Jesus says. It's to be seen. And people draw near to that city by it. They're guided to the city by it. Travelers negotiating the valleys uh, have hope that civilization exists, that there's a community of people dwelling together where they too can be safe, be fed, uh, find a bed to sleep in, perhaps work to do, make friends and belong to that community. This is what you are, Jesus says. You are, the church is to be a city on a hill, as Peter put it we read earlier in the service you are a chosen race you are a royal priesthood you are a holy nation a community a people for God's own possession 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who did what? Who called you out of darkness and who called you into his marvelous light. Once you were not his people, but now you are his people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So extend that mercy. Be merciful. The Beatitudes. Include people in that community. Your light is inescapable. It cannot be hidden. A city set on a hill is visible. Now the second illustration shows you how intentional this is. Verse 15. Nor do people, he says, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. It's not hidden. It can't be hidden. And and it wouldn't be hidden, Jesus says. That's not his purpose. You don't light a lamp and put a basket over it. Totally defeats the purpose of lighting the lamp, right? It makes no sense to cover it up. That would be silly. That would be like turning, for you and I, turning on the light switch to our closet and then shutting the closet door and just leaving the light on. What would be the point of that? This is what Jesus is getting at. Why would you do that? No, no, no. What, what you do is you light the lamp and you set it where it gives light to everything else. That's the purpose of it. And what he's talking about here, of course, is you. He's talking about your life. He's talking about your witness. Why did God call you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Why did he call you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light? So that you would be light to the world. So that you would be useful. Notice that the point, of course, isn't to see the light but that the light helps you see other things. One, can, uh, one lamp lit can illumine all who are in the room and help them to see, not stare at the light, but see everything else that's in the room. Just like one believer in a classroom, one believer in an office, one believer in a family, just one believer on a team can bring light into darkness. The point isn't for people to see you, but by you to see Jesus. So he has these two illustrations, a city set on a hill, a lamp set on a lampstand. This is what you are. You are a witness for Christ. We might just ask, what kind of witness are you of Christ? Now then, there's an exhortation. Be what you are is what Jesus says, right? Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, Jesus says. In belonging to Jesus, you have the light of the world. That's him. You are the light of the world. So then be light in the world. Light in the Bible is the antithesis of darkness. It's, it's purity in some places as, as opposed to filth. It's knowledge as opposed to ignorance. It's truth as opposed to error. It's wisdom as opposed to foolishness. It's clarity as opposed to confusion. It's revelation from God as opposed to the opinions of people simply grasping at straws. It's all these things. And Jesus is saying, look, why did I rescue you? Why did I put my love in your heart? Why did I put my word in your mind? Why did I enlighten the eyes of your mind to understand wonderful things from my word? Why did I do that? Not for you to keep it to yourself. 
not merely for your enjoyment of me, though please enjoy me. That's the point. Right? The gospel is news that brings joy. Enjoy him, but not only for yourself, but he wants you to bear light to see others find that same enjoyment. And notice how he says here, let your light shine. And then he says that they may see your good works. So what's he talking about? He's talking about uh, good works, good here, uh, meaning like attractive works or beautiful works, uh, adorned works, uh, works that adorn the gospel of Christ, that make Christ look beautiful. He's talking about our lifestyle and our words, our works and our words. Um, Supposedly, St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Now, there's some doubt as to whether he actually said that or somebody else did. But that's, that's not a sound statement. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words is nonsense, right? You can't preach the gospel without using words. Because the gospel isn't just look what I'm doing and uh, repeat after me. The gospel isn't just look at what I'm doing and be impressed with me. The gospel isn't look at what I just did and imitate me. I mean, if all that others simply have from you is what they see you do, you haven't preached the gospel to them, and possibly, however unintentionally, you've just loaded onto their backs a weight they can't bear because they can't be you. And if they don't have Christ, they can't do what you do for the reasons you do it. And that's all you've got. If you don't use words to explain why you are who you are in Christ, or how you do what you do by the power of Christ, because the gospel takes words. That means we have to speak. The gospel means news that brings joy. It's an announcement. It's heralded. You shout it from the rooftops. Somebody else has carried a load You can't carry. So you're free. It's news about somebody, a substitute, who is sufficient to bring you to God by his finished work, not by your works for him. It relieves you of that burden. It frees you. It brings joy. So then, you cannot preach the gospel without words. You've got to use words to tell people about Jesus. But, notice what Jesus is saying here. We ought not to preach the gospel and only have words. True faith works. The Protestant reformers were not wrong when they said we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. True faith is always accompanied by works. True faith is a living faith. It isn't dead, it's alive. And the works are themselves the fruit of union with Christ. In him we bear fruit. In him we do good works. This is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were not saved by our works, we're saved unto good works, for the purpose of good works. This is the pattern in Paul's letters. This is the pattern of Ephesians 1 to 3 and Ephesians 4 to 6. This is the pattern of Colossians 1 and 2 versus Colossians 3 and 4. In, in, in the first part of his letters, you get your identity in Jesus, who you are, and there's not a single command about what you're to do. And in the last half of the letter, he says, I, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. If you have an identity, now there's an agenda. I've made you something, now go live it out, in other words. So what are then these good works Jesus says we are to do? Well, I think there are a thousand little things we could talk about in everyday life, and they are simply too numerous to enumerate. Live a life of love, if you want to summarize it, out of love for Christ. Make Christ attractive to others by the Loving works that you do. Even in our work. I mean our job. Our our calling. Look you don't have to. what, What I'm saying is. You don't have to stop what you're doing. Ten hours a day. To go do good works. That are totally unrelated. To the rest of the way that you live your life. Uh, Dorothy Sayers in her essays, in her essay. Why work. I think criticizes the message of the church this way. And helpfully so. How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this. That the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. No crooked legs or ill-fitting drawers, I dare swear, says Dorothy Sayers, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor, if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. Let the church remember this, that every maker... And worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade. The apostles, she goes on to say, rightly complained when they said it was not meet or not fit that they should leave the word of God and serve tables. Their vocation was to preach the word. But the person whose vocation is it is to prepare the Meals beautifully might with equal justice protest. It is not meet for us to leave the service of our tables to preach the word. The the point she's getting at, which the Bible affirms, is that whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Work heartily as unto the Lord. Don't stop being a homemaker. Don't stop being a parent. Don't stop working at your job or studying in your classroom in order to do good works out there. I mean, if you have the leisure time to do it, that's fine. 
But those things themselves are the very occasion and place in which you do good works to the glory and honor of God. Or perhaps we don't. But we ought to. Adorn the gospel. Make Christ attractive in the work that you do and everywhere else. It should be seen in the way that we treat you know, the shop assistant at the counter, in the way that we treat those who serve us a meal at a restaurant, in the way that we treat our employees or the way that we treat our employer, in the way that we play a game or drive a car or park a car, or in the daily language we use or in the daily literature we read. A Christian should be just as much a Christian in the factory, the workshop, the shipyard, the mine, the schoolroom, the surgery, the kitchen, the golf course, the playing field, as he is in church. Jesus did not say, as another put it, you are the light of the church. He said, you are the light of the world. So living a life of love because you have been loved by Jesus. Speaking the truth in love because Jesus has spoken of his love to you. This is his exhortation. And then he gets to your motivation. And we'll close with that. Notice verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't draw attention to yourself. That's not the point. And you know that the Pharisees did that. And he's going to have hard words for them, even in the Sermon on the Mount. They lived so that the world would say, look how pious, look how religious, look how good that person is at following God. Jesus is saying, that's not my goal for you here. He rebuked the Pharisees for being hypocrites because they did their works of piety and religiosity in order to be seen. Right? He'll, he'll speak of them praying long prayers in public, but not really praying in private. Uh, fasting, but then putting on a long face so that everybody knows they're suffering by depriving themselves for God's sake. And he'll speak of them even sending trumpets out before them to announce that they're about to put money in the offering plate. Just so everybody knows they're pulling out the wallet and tapping into their resources. because Not because they gave cheerfully. Not because they gave joyously, happily, generously, but they gave reluctantly and under compulsion with a desire to be seen. Jesus isn't talking about any of that. He says, though, let your light shine so that they may see your good works. So what's he getting at? Alexander McLaren said it best in a sermon over 100 years ago. Jesus does not mean take precautions that your goodness may come out into public, but it means... Shine. You find the light and the world will find the eyes. You do not need to seek to be seen of men. But you do need to shine that men may see. The lighthouse keeper takes no pains that the ships tossing away out at sea may may behold the beam that shines from his lamp. All that he does is to feed it and tend it. And that is all that you and I have to do, says McLaren. Tend the light and do not, like cowards, 
Cover it up. Modestly, but yet bravely, carry out your Christianity. And men will see it. Live your Christianity. And it will be beheld. So Jesus says, let your light shine so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The motivation here is that the Father would be seen and honored and known for the family resemblance of his own children. And so Augustine said it long ago, this means that even though one is seen by others and doing good works in one's conscience, one ought to have the simple intention of glorifying God. It is only for the sake of God's glory that we should allow our good works to become known. And so we have to ask ourselves the question. And we ought to do this regularly. And I confess I tell you to do it. And I so frequently fail to ask myself this question regularly. Am I right now doing what I do with a desire for my father to be honored? Is that why I am doing what I'm doing? And in the way that I'm doing it? Or do I really want you just to like me? Or think he's a good public speaker? Or he's an attentive dad when his wife nudges him a little bit? Or do I just want you to be my friend? Do you just want other people to think well of you? Is that why you do what you do? Or do you do what you do because you want the Father to be honored? He will be. If that's your intention, by the power of Christ, looking only unto him, trusting in him, expressing the life of Christ. And so I ask you, are you still in darkness? Who are you? Are you the light of the world? Are you in Jesus or are you still in darkness? Well, you've been hearing that Christ is the light of the world. He is the only hope of salvation for you. You can know God no other way than through Jesus Christ because he is the way and the truth and the life. You are invited to know God through him who is the light. And what about you who are trusting in Christ? Then you, you are to abide in Christ and bear much fruit for apart from him you can do nothing. God has made you in this world salt and light. He has made you to be salt and light. So be salt and be light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, forgive us. We are not what we ought to be. We are not what we one day will be in glory. And thank you that we are not what we once were because of your grace. You've changed us now. Change us all the more. Deepen our knowledge of the love of Jesus and our expression of that love in this world. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to stand and we'll sing together.